Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome everybody to episode 21 of Push Dose EMS, brought to you by the Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. I am your host, Jeff Matcha, uh, bringing you this month's installment. Uh, joining me today are the usual uh, cast of characters. Going down my list to see, to welcome everybody, uh, System Medical Director, Dr. Ben Weston. Dr. Weston, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Hello, everyone. Uh, EMS Division Director Dan Podra, welcome Dan. Hey everybody. And our illustrious EMS Fellows, uh, Dr. Nico Rendovich. Dr. Rendovich, welcome. How you doing? And Dr. Brandon Drazich. Dr. Drazich, welcome. Hello everyone. Help, hope you're all well. Uh, thanks everybody for joining us today. Uh, this is going to be part three of our discussion on uh, obstetrics and neonatal. Uh, before we dive into the subject too deeply, once again, uh, we'll hit our normal topic areas uh, with some updates from the office. Uh, so from the medical direction team, Dr. Weston, any updates this month? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. So just a couple of very brief updates. One is you may have seen, hopefully you did, the number notice update for uh, COVID and PPE. So we're making it a little more of a dynamic process based on the CDC's community levels. So we are currently in green for the CDC level, and that's up on our Milwaukee County COVID-19 dashboard. And so while we're in green, uh, surgical masks are acceptable for all patient encounters, uh, unless you're doing aerosol generating procedures, and that is talked about uh, in the number notice. So should we go to yellow uh, for our community level, we would shift back toward KN95 and 95 uh, or similar type of masks. But for now, surgical masks or higher uh, are acceptable for all patient encounters except aerosol generating procedures. Uh, and the only other update is uh, our guideline updates. So our annual guideline update video was recorded this week. Uh, lots of great updates. Kudos to uh, our guideline and policy subcommittee and uh, all the folks involved in that uh, who contributed to a, a really nice set of evidence-based, uh, quality metric informed guideline updates. So we're excited for that and I'll hand it back to you. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Dr. Weston. And for the system, Dan, any updates? Yes, Jeff. And I will also be brief as Dr. Weston was. Um, thanks to everyone in the system, especially the paramedics who renewed their national registry. I know that was uh, coming up at the end of the, at the end of March. Um, so it looks like registry is actually making the process a little bit easier. So hopefully that wasn't too painful for the folks. Uh, also, uh, we will be returning to in-person simulations in just a few weeks here. So we'll be back out in the field with you guys and being able to do hands-on skills and assessments with you. So looking forward to that. And then finally, uh, as part of our new, uh, investment initiative in the system, we are purchasing, Zoll online and case review for every cardiac monitor within the system. So uh, traditionally, this has only been on the transporting EMS units, but we know that there are Zoll monitors on engines and trucks. Uh, so this will allow for data sharing uh, between those monitors, uh, between the field and the cloud, and then also the ability to transmit EKG and live stream from the field for those PFR uh, units. Uh, those are my big updates. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Dan. Uh, a lot of hard work done being done by a lot of folks out there. Uh, we certainly appreciate all the system involvement uh, in getting those projects completed and up and running. Uh, I am going to tease some good news for those of you out there that are nationally registered. Uh, 
coming up for state license renewal next year, next spring of 23. To the best of my understanding at this point, and again, this is just a teaser and more information will come, but if you're current on your national registry, your state license renewal uh, will be quite simple. You will go in, log into e-licensing, uh, click that you are nationally registered. National registry will push that information to the state office and your license will be renewed. Uh, that is my current understanding. Uh, we'll see how things progress in the next uh, 15 months or so uh, and more information to come as we get it. So hopefully state license renewals will be nice and simple next spring. And with that, uh, we'll move on to the topic du jour. Uh, once again, into the OBGYN realm uh, with Dr. Zarendovich and Drazic. So gentlemen, please take it away. All right. Thanks for coming back to us here. Welcome to Act 3 of the OB and Newborn Resuscitation Podcast. Before we get too much deeper into it, let's get into a quick review of what we did last week. Those are the OB emergencies. Last week, we covered a lot of things that were related to intrapartum issues. In other words, things that were going to go wrong around the time of birth. The first of these was shoulder dystocia. This is kind of the shoulder getting caught on that pubic bone. Uh, and the treatment for that is to hyperflex the hips, get them those knees up in the air, which is called the McRoberts position, and do some super pubic pressure. Again, pressure very down low to kind of facilitate that birth. The next thing we want to talk a little bit about is cord prolapse. This is essentially when the cord gets in the way of the passage. Remember, that umbilical cord is the tether to life for a lot of these kids before they start breathing spontaneously. Our guidelines recommend trying to determine the pulse rate of the cord. The goal is for it to be over 100. And if you can't determine what that is, it's okay. Take the safer approach. A lot of times when that head is coming down the canal or even another limb, whether it's a footling or breech delivery, that can actually put a lot of pressure on that cord and cut off that blood supply. What you're going to want to do in that situation is take a sterile glove and push back on that presenting part, elevating it off the cord to ensure good pulse and good blood flow. That's a fast transport to a facility that can perform C-sections. Postpartum hemorrhage uh, is specifically defined as one liter of blood loss within 24 hours uh, after uh, delivery associated with signs of hypovolemia. But for us, it's not important to think about the specific decision. Um, although that's the one that will be used in the hospital. Causes of hemorrhage include uterine atony, which is the most common cause, just kind of that weak, boggy uterus, uh, really treated by us by doing some deep fundal massage to help that, uh, that uterus contract, push hard and deep for that. Uterine inversion, which is the inside out uterus that can no longer clamp down on those blood vessels, this is why we talk about delivering the placenta with very gentle traction to kind of prevent that uh, uterus from flipping inside out. Lacerations, of course, you can sustain some uh, pretty significant lacerations uh, in the vaginal canal and uh, pelvic area during delivery. Um, here, you might need to think about some direct pressure and your normal hemorrhage management. And finally, patients can certainly have bleeding disorders. All the other things that you might think about that might cause someone to be more prone to bleeding would apply here. We also talked a little bit about preeclampsia. This is that spectrum of blood pressure issues that can lead to seizures or a lot of bleeding. If they seize, follow your seizure protocols, treat them with Versed, or in the future, whenever we get magnesium added, which is going to be relatively soon, remember that, uh, that that's going to be the treatment. Remember, hypertension of greater than 140 over 90, though we almost never really consider it as being a major issue in the pre-hospital setting, can be very concerning in a pregnant patient. 
Now, moving on, we've finished covering the major maternal issues. Now we're going to start moving towards patient number two. Let's talk about the newborn exam. When that kid's born, when they first come out, you're going to see this cheesy-like layer uh, that you see when the kid comes out. This is actually something called vernix. It's a very thick and greasy substance, which helps really protect the kid's skin and utero. It's very slippery, so just be very careful if you're on the edge of a cot, if you're in the back of an ambulance, or you're, you know, delivering someone in a car. First, covering that relatively well and normal appearing newborn. Of course, in every child you deliver, you're going to want to consider getting those Apgars. Uh, this is named after Virginia Apgar, which... That sounds totally made up, considering it's an acronym. You know, in her original proposal in 1953, she never actually named the acronym. She just gave that list of five things she deemed most important. The acronym was actually coined 10 years after that publication. Uh, and this method is used more than you think, particularly when they name studies. What? You wanted to call it a what? A backronym. Yeah, well, that word sounds made up too. There are five components of the APGAR score, capable, which are going to be between zero and two for each piece, for a max total of 10. Just like all data points, you're never going to check it once. It needs to be done at least twice to show a trend, and sometimes it'll be even more common when the kid is unwell. In this case, it's going to be done at the first minute of life and the fifth minute of life. So APGAR, A stands for appearance. This is really related to the way their skin looks, their overall appearance. A score of zero is for a blue or pale, you know, pale, fully like uh, unwell appearing child, not great. One is blue at the extremities with a pink body. This is actually super common. This is actually probably the most common score. And you'll note that it is actually exceptionally uncommon for a child to be born with a full score of 10. Um, of course, two, that's that totally non-cyanotic child. Uh, this almost never happens. But remember, you want to look for that appearance. Don't go too much off of the uh, SpO2 at this point, because it's totally normal at one minute to expect SpO2 in the 60 to 65 range. At five minutes, it's going to be from 80 to 85%. And at 10 minutes, it's still going to be from 85 to 95%. Don't apply oxygen hastily. Really look for appearance, A. P, this stands for pulse. This one's pretty straightforward. You're looking for the pulse of the kid. It gets kind of tricky from time to time, especially in some of the smaller, more premature ones. If the kid looks well, crying, moving, sticking a stethoscope to here is pretty reasonable. In fact, that's usually one of the best ways to do it. Any other time, feeling for the pulse can be really useful. Now remember, in a neonate, in a baby, assessing for a radial pulse is probably not going to happen. You're going to have to feel for a brachial pulse, so in that upper arm. You're going to take your two fingers, squeeze in the inner upper arm between the biceps and the triceps, or get the femoral pulse. And the truth is, it's very difficult to even feel it in either of these places. One of the other great places you can test if you can't feel it anywhere else is actually palpating for a pulse on the umbilical stump. When we score these things, a score of zero has no pulse. A score of one is less than 100, and a score of two is greater than 100. G stands for grimace. This is really reflex irritability, uh, but grimace uh, as a word fits the acronym a little bit better. Uh, it is really the, the newborn's response to stimulation. So poke and prod the kid or realistically give them a little rub. 
most of the time you don't even need to do this. You can just look at the kid and if they are, are crying appropriately, um, you know, you might be able to assess without that. A child that's already screaming and crying, definitely a two. If you're going to have to sternal rub and then you get some response with that or suction and get response with that, that's a one, zero, they're not doing anything. Typically, that's not a good sign. A is the activity. This is kind of how that kid's moving. Kind of comes in line with a lot with that grimace. This one's pretty straightforward. A kid that's moving all the limbs, looks like they're flexing, might be giving a little bit of resistance when you try to pull on that little arm. That's a two. If they're flexing a little bit, you know, that's a one. They might look a little bit floppier. Their arms might be a little bit more to their sides. And a floppy, non-moving kid, that's a zero. And R is for respiratory effort. This is probably the one you're going to be great at recognizing when and what good breathing is and what bad and poor respiratory uh, effort is. A two is going to be a strong and robust cry definition of an intact airway. The kid that looks pissed, they were brought into the world and reacting appropriately. A one is going to be some weak and irregular breathing. Uh, maybe some periodic gasping and a zero is no spontaneous breathing at all. And that's the whole scoring system. I want to emphasize something here though. This score is not designed to be prognostic. It doesn't really tell you how the kid is going to be. Really, it gives us an objective number and looking for a kid that's going to need help. And it helps us to show the direction that the kid is going. Scores of seven and above are generally normal. Four to six, fairly low. And three and below are generally regarded as critically low and cause for immediate resuscitative efforts, which makes sense when you consider what the scoring, scoring involves. In general, they'll check the scores again if the numbers are still low as a way to determine the direction. So one, five minutes, 10 minutes, etc. If it's a really low score or even a zero, just do what you do best and go through your resuscitation. To get into the weeds with a little bit of the research, there's a study recently that showed that the majority of the neonates born at 32 weeks to 36 weeks, and even greater than 36 weeks, survived at similar rates when they matched their neonates to APGAR scores that were also low in the twos to threes. So in plain speak, even if they look like a stillbirth, they've got a chance. Just to recap briefly, that's A for appearance, overall uh, skin tone and color, P for pulse, G for grimace and the strength of that cry, a for activity, and R for respiratory effort. If these kids look good, consider passing them off to the mother for skin-to-skin -skin contact and to start breastfeeding. That'll release some oxytocin and help the mother's, mother's uterus firm up, which can help po prevent postpartum hemorrhage. We recognize what a big pain this can be calculating in the moment. You know, often I have trouble myself just adding up basic calculations when I'm trying to manage so many other different things. You know, in your next guideline, you're going to have it inline the document so you can easily find it. Just pull it up, look at it, pull up a calculator so you don't have to worry about being super precise or exact, really cognitively offload, just so you can get the basics of that score. So don't worry about being exact. In this case, close enough is usually good enough. The next thing we want to talk about is meconium aspiration. Gross. Meconium is essentially the baby's first poop. It's gross, tarry, and incredibly sticky. Ideally, that first bell movement happens after the child is born. However, sometimes we know that that is not the case. Every so often, it happens while uh, actually in the uterus itself. Um, the, while there, you know, the 
child has really been uh, living in all those surroundings, uh, including their own urine uh, at the time, but often and ideally not their, uh, not that meconium, not that stool. In this case, they accidentally inhale their own poop. We used to think this was a huge issue. Back in the day, these kids were getting practically intubated for deep suction. We actually found out we were doing worse by these kids. Since about 2010, they've actually removed this concept of deep suctioning aspect from care guidelines. And retrospectively, looking back after this was done, all of these kids that were not intubated tended to do a lot better. So what do we do then? Bulb suction and vigorous stimulation. And I know I was just out with a med unit the other night. We're talking, do you want to do the mouth first, the nose first? I know sometimes the textbooks are a little persnickety about this. Doesn't matter. You just bulb suction, you stimulate, you clean off. And if the kid's in good shape, they'll eventually cough it out. A persnickety sounds like a delicious dessert. Onwards, we'll begin to talk about the resuscitation, neonatal resuscitation. This one's a little bit harder to find. It's kind of under the newborn care assessment and will soon be in line with the OB documentation as well. Remember, the well-appearing, full-term crying kid is usually going to be a good thing. One of the earliest and best things we can do is keep that newborn warm. That means ideally delivering, well, ideally in the hospital. Second best might be the ambulance. Third best might be the house, uh, but really try to avoid outside and exposure to the cold. Especially in these preemie kids, this is really important. Kids are going to lose heat like crazy. It's one of the reasons we like to get them on the mom soon. You see them go into like the little like panda heaters that they have for their resuscitations. And it's why you see them get wrapped up and even put those little itty bitty hats on them when they get placed in the hospital. We probably have some thermal bags or any plastic bag to put the newborns in, which helps regulate the temperature. Just remember, you want to make sure not to fully seal them up and keep that uh, oxygen exchange going. When looking at the rest of neonatal resuscitation, it's breathing and heart rates. The majority of the time when kids are doing poorly, it's almost never a hard thing. Heck, it's a brand new heart. It's going to take them years to clog those arteries with their diets. The majority of the time, it's going to be associated with airway. This is why the use of BVM is crucial in these cases. If you have a kid that's gasping or apneic, and you, or, or you address their heart rate is less than 100, you'll want to do some BVM. It's going to give these kids some good positive pressure ventilation. And it's when that heart rate drops below 60 that you're actually going to want to start those chest compressions. Remember, in these cases, you're going to be compressing at a three to one ratio of compressions to breath. This is different from PALS and really emphasizes the importance of ventilations. Ultimately, there's really two phases uh, in the neonatal resuscitation program. Uh, first, if the heart rate initially is less than 100 or they don't look like they're breathing adequately, just focus on that ventilation. Again, ventilation, not necessarily oxygenation. You are going to have low SpO2. Initially, you don't need to really rush to treat that. Use room air. Um, you know, Here in newborns, they're going to be very sensitive to oxygenation. You want to avoid oxygen toxicity. Uh, but focus on that pediatric assessment triangle and not the number. If their heart rate is less than 100, start some BVM. Second, after that initial assessment, if the heart rate is still low, if it's below 60 or maybe even pulseless, then you go right into CPR. And this is those positive pressure ventilations plus the compressions. Focus on that first. You know, sometimes we can lose sight with all the other things that can get done, but focus on the ventilations and the compressions. At this point, you'll want to hook up your oxygen, 
you want to gain access, you want to start giving epi. And if we aren't responding within a minute or two to that, we want to consider other causes like pneumothorax, hypovolemia, and all the rest. So when it comes to the resuscitation, remember the big ones to remember here are some of the numbers. Ventilation is going to be important. If your heart rate goes below 100, begin positive pressure ventilation with BVM. And if the heart rate goes beneath 60, begin CPR, and you're going to be giving compressions to ventilations at a rate of three to one. As we move on, we're going to talk about some of the more bleeding edge things associated with OB care. Thankfully, there's not going to actually be a lot of bleeding involved here since we've talked about that ad nauseum for the past two months. We're also going to get a slight technical and glance over a little bit of the data behind the stuff, but we're doing this because we know how uncomfortable it can be taking care of pregnant people. It's one thing to bake a chicken. It's another to prepare a turducken. That's right. I just made a 2002 John Madden Thanksgiving reference. Rest in peace. Anyways, the things we're going to cover uh, moving forward here are going to be the hodgepodge of conditions that are less related to pregnancy itself and more can happen with pregnancy. And sometimes we wonder if the management changes or different. And the first of these, we're going to cover some cardiac conditions, including starting with arrhythmias, SVTs, common in all patients. And like normal, if it's unstable, we're going to shock the patient. We're going to do that synchronized cardioversion. If not, you can consider online medical control or transporting. Truly, there's not a, data, a lot of data here to show that it's dangerous to do, use odenazine, uh, but there's not a lot of data in general, which makes it a bit harder. Next thing you consider about AFib, this is going to be similar to SVT again. Use what you know. Shock if you're unstable. If not, really consider transportation. Though diltiazem is pretty safe, especially in the pre-hospital setting, when it comes to pregnancy, that answer is again, no one knows. And with this drug that tends to linger around a little bit longer, I'd be a little bit more hesitant to give it. And VTAC, uh, you know, those unstable wide complex rhythms, there's a theme here. First and foremost, you're going to shock. Uh, definitely don't give uh, amiodarone in the picture of stable VTAC. Uh, this one definitely has been shown to have some negative outcomes. Remember, for a lot of these, electricity is going to be safer and especially your best first-line option if they are less stable as a patient. I want to briefly talk about cardiomyopathies, those big-hearted folks that the heart gets so big that it's not necessarily love but function loss. You can also have heart failure as a result of pregnancy. They'll have all the same heart failure symptoms and looks, but you'll typically see them in a younger pregnant or recently pregnant female. This is about occurs in about one to 900 or one in 4,000 cases. No one really knows its exact numbers. So it's not very often, but over the course of your career, you're definitely going to see one of these at some point. Anecdotally, whenever I've seen a young lady with a heart transplant or an LVAD, it seems like this is usually the case. And then there's cardiac arrest. For a medical cardiac arrest, do fairly routine care. Remember, for these guidelines, if they're greater than 20 weeks, roughly the fundal height at the level of the umbilicus, you'll want to call online medical control immediately just to chat through the, uh, the situation and how things might change. But 99% of the time, you have everything you need in the back of the ambulance. In the very rare cases, the hospital might have one additional thing to offer, which is the perimortem cesarean section. 
This more recently has been called resuscitative hysterotomy. Um, and this is primarily aimed at saving the life of the mother. Um, this improves maternal survivability by really decreasing the extreme compression of the inferior vena cava. This in turn, uh, in turn improves blood flow to the heart and makes resuscitation potentially a little bit more tenable in these patients. In other words, when we remove the baby, more blood flow flows back to the mother. And when we look at things like refractory V-fib in these cardiac arrests in a pulseless patient, that comment I made about amio being dangerous, in a lot of cases, we can forget that here. The goal is preservation of the mother, and if it works, it's going to work. For your traumatic arrests, it's going to be pretty similar to your standard trauma protocols. Start the resuscitation, do your LSIs, and understandably, it's going to be a tough one. Just like a non-pregnant patient, if it's a witnessed arrest, this is gonna be a scoop and go to the trauma center. Uh, other than that, you definitely want early, early online medical control involvement to consider alternative treatments. Re really both for these medical and trauma arrests, the one other maneuver you can attempt beyond the standard of care is pushing that uterus over to the left side. This can potentially get some of that pressure off that inferior vena cava and in increase the blood return flow to the heart, but really, first and foremost, focus on your routine care. And that's why we have them in those universal care guidelines for pregnant patients to put them in that left lateral decubitus. Another thing we just want to touch that's towards the end here is the psychiatric cases. This is that peripartum depression and some of the postpartum psychosis. These are really tough cases, especially when we consider these uh, potentials of agitated delirium. And honestly, we don't have a great answer for this because there's not a lot of data behind it either. Thankfully, this will really rarely be peripartum and mostly postpartum. Use ketamine if you need to, as we've kind of outlined in your guidelines. If they're pregnant, kind of consider online med control as they might have something different in mind like Versed. Main takeaway here is to remember that the post immediate postpartum period is not only difficult, but can induce psychiatric conditions that weren't uh, previously present. So the patient might have a very new or first onset, uh, uh, first onset development of a condition here that really needs very prompt medical attention for that psychiatric state. And the final thing we're gonna talk about here is transportation. Remember, I think we hit this in our first podcast when we started doing this. Make sure we use car seats if applicable. And the last thing I want to talk about is destinations. For the patients that are obstetric and in active labor, for Ascension, it's going to be All Saints Racine, Elmbrook, St. Francis, St. Joseph's, St. Mary's Milwaukee, and St. Mary's Ozaki. For Aurora, it's going to be Grafton, Sinai, West Allis. For Freighter, it includes Freighter Hospital, Maine, and Freighter Menominee Falls. And for ProHealth, it includes Waukesha Memorial. I think it's worth remembering that if you have a patient in active labor, all emergency departments should be equipped to manage an OB patient. I say this as someone who sits in some of these small hospitals. We are all ready to receive. We are not going to be comfortable with it, but we'll definitely be able to do it. It's also worth remembering which places have a neonatal intensive care unit. And this is going to be more important for those unstable neonates delivered in the field or some of these questionable workups that we don't have all the great answers to and that are higher risk, specifically pre premature kids. And out of the Ascension system, that's St. Joseph's, St. Mary's, and All Saints in Racine. 
And of course, the Children's Hospital of Wisconsin. But at the end of the day here, rather than focusing on destination, if you need to, once again, focus on getting the patient to that closest, most appropriate center using your clinical judgment. Any ED should be able to help you with initial management uh, if you need those extra hands and extra assistance. Well, guys, we've made it. Three acts of OB and neonatal coverage. As always, you can always reach out to us if you have any questions. And if you have any great cases you'd like to share, we always love to hear them. We learn a lot from you guys as much as we love to teach. Thank you guys for your time. Docs, thanks so much. Uh, excellent information as always. Uh, I want to thank everyone for joining us today. And for all of you out there uh, taking the time to listen to the podcast, we really appreciate it. Uh, to echo Dr. Rendovich, if you do have any questions, comments, uh, topic areas you'd like to hear about on the podcast, please let us know. Uh, we're always willing to uh, fill in the need for the county and the providers out there. Uh, you can reach us at emseducation at milwaukeecountywi.gov uh, with any of your questions or thoughts. Uh, again, appreciate your time. Stay safe, and we'll talk again next month.